0: just between us hey just between us hey hello
1: i'm Allison Raskin i'm a writer mental health advocate and someone who is working on
2: my tolerance for uncertainty <laughs> <laughs> hi i'm Gabby Dunn i'm a writer bicon bisexual icon wink and was literally about to say i am confused <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay, so first of all, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous and games. And brutal honesty. So now that you know what this is, let's talk about what happened. <laughs> um, we we uh, had a problem with time. We had two guests. And then time zones happened to us. And it was unfair.
1: Yeah, the thing about time zones, they're always changing. It's not like there's a consistency with time no. zones.
2: <laughs> and we didn't ask for it. And we didn't say make our lives harder time zones. They just did it. And I think we are victims. So basically what happened is we had two guests at the same time. They arrived (laughs) at the same time. In this week's episode,
1: the interview with the guest starts off with just Gabby. Then I join later. But, you know, what we learned again is like, things life comes at you fast the
2: hits keep coming and they don't stop coming and you ha- you can't predict anything right you can't prepare for anything really nope. you gotta just roll with it baby we literally said you take one I take the other and in five minutes we split off and we did our interviews separately and we kept the, everyone on schedule and that is that is the power of two people working together I was going to say that's the power of two people doing one job. (laughs) (laughs) What we found out is either one of us could do this. No, actually, (laughs) what we found out is we couldn't because if there had been only one of us, we would never have been able to pull this off. And that's the power of two people.
1: With one job.
2: With one job.
1: Yeah. No, I have to say that it was strange to do hypotheticals without you. To do hypotheticals one-on-one was strange.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. And and it was, like, interesting to hop in and do an interview alone that wasn't, like, for bad with money. And also, I felt weird being like, "Uh, so I'm going to have to excuse myself. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I came in and I was like, I have no idea what questions
1: have already been asked. Uh huh. And so I was like, anyway, you guys listen, let us know how we did. (laughs) Yeah. Let us
2: know how we did. I think the interviews are both still incredible. I just want to give you guys the behind the scenes of the work that we put in (laughs) for you and how flexible and adaptive and hardworking and good at this we are.
1: I would say Melissa was the real hero here. That's true. And there is an amazing photo of her with like two computers. Each of our interviews open on them. So she really came through for us.
2: I will post that on at JBU podcast on Instagram. I will post the photo of uh, Melissa Handling both interviews at the same time Despite the snafu, we have an incredible episode for you guys today Our wonderful guest was
1: Maya Shankar Who came on, uh, she's a behavioral scientist She came on to talk about um, the ability to change And also how behavioral science is starting to inform public policy Which, being the nerds that we are, we ate that up Of
2: course (laughs) And later, we're going to be discussing burnout and how to spot it and why we need to take it seriously. We've got to answer a listener's question. So
1: we have to. We ha- Legally, we, we, have legally to. we have to. Legally, we
2: have to. So hit it.
0: International question. International question. International question. V.
1: California. T.L. DR. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to lead someone on? Mm-hmm. How do you be close friends with someone who could be attracted to you? Mm-hmm. Part of why I picked this question is just to see the anger and fire that it's going to ignite in Gabby. But here we go. <laughs>
2: yeah, because I read the TLDR, but I have not read uh, the rest of the question. So I'm ready to be mad. Well, get ready.
1: Hi, Allison and Gabby. I've followed you both for years and absolutely love you two in the podcast. It's been a great Mm -hmm. source of comfort during this difficult past year, and I would love to hear your perspectives on a question I've been struggling with for a while now. My question for you both is, what does it mean to lead someone on? A year ago, my best friend told me he was in love with me. He fully believed that I would leave my boyfriend of several years to date him. When I turned him down, he said that he and his friends thought I had been leading him on and using him. At the time, I didn't think I was leading him on, but he and others obviously felt that way. This falling out was the most painful experience I've had because I had to suddenly and repeatedly hurt one of the people I loved most in the world. I'm not over it a year later. The backstory is that I was best friends with this guy for a few years. We are all in our mid-20s. We hung out a tongue, laughing about silly things and trying different hobbies. Because my boyfriend travels most weeks for work and doesn't share many of my hobbies, I'd often spend more time with my friend than my boyfriend. At one point, I realized that I started to develop feelings for him. But because I love my boyfriend and my friend also was involved with someone, I decided those feelings didn't need to be a big deal. And our friendship was important enough to make work. So I set my own personal boundaries, no physical affection, always inviting both my boyfriend and friend to events, making sure my boyfriend knew how much time I was spending with my friend and naively thought things were good. From my side, I thought of him as my best friend and didn't think our friendship was romantic. From his side and the side of his housemates, they thought I clearly wanted to date him because I hung out so much and I was just building courage to leave my boyfriend." My initial reaction is that's unfair. Spending a lot of time together is not a promise of a relationship, but I also know I handled the situation imperfectly. The big thing I handled poorly is that over time, I avoided talking about my boyfriend to my friend. This was because my friend started being awkward when I talked about my boyfriend, and it was subconsciously easier for me to avoid that red flag than confront it. Maybe this means I was leading my friend on. That wasn't my intention, but intentions matter less than impact. I will probably see my former friend again in a few months and I don't know what to say to him. I want to say sorry for the things I did wrong, but I'm still not sure if I did as much wrong as he said. Honestly, I'm still a little mad that I viewed our years-long wonderful friendship as me using him after I said I didn't want to date. But also, I should have realized he was in love with me and made better boundaries and not avoided talking about my boyfriend. I don't know. Hindsight is twenty-twenty, and I still miss my friend a lot and feel heartbroken about my role in our friendship ending. Anyway, I'd love to hear your two's perspective on what it means to lead someone on and how to have close friends with- friendships with someone who could be attracted to you <laughs> your face
2: <laughs> Issa doozy this is the most apologetic email from a person who p- probably did nothing wrong yeah like this email you are beating yourself up and giving this other person the benefit of the doubt in a way that look i've come a long way gender wise I'm no longer a kill-all-men feminist type of person. I do think we should kill this man and his housemates. I just... (laughs) The objectification of you, the entitlement, the idea... The fact that you already had a boyfriend and you are your own person. The idea that by not being interested in him, you have thieved him of something that was never his to begin with. And then he made you think that you did something wrong. This has become so twisted. You were wronged by this person. This person wronged you. And now you're coming, crawling to your favorite podcast saying, oh, I don't know. Did I do something wrong? I did this bad and I did this bad. No, read this back. Print this out. I want you to print out this email you just send us. I want you to put it on on big, you know, like like cue cards for a TV show. I want you to go to Kinko's and I want you to print it out that big. And then I want you to read it out loud to yourself. And then I want you to stop and then I want you to read it out loud to yourself a second time. And then I want you to look in the mirror and say, self, What? <laughs> Yeah. I'm so glad that I didn't that I didn't know the full extent of this email that I just read the TLDR. I I'm about to flip my desk.
3: Yeah,
1: I love to pick ones that just I know will get you riled. It's so fun. I am so angry. <laughs> let's OK, let's break it down. There's a lot here. I think in this specific example, the it, the real issue here, because I think that people get confused. I think that close friendships can be confusing. But his reaction is the most illuminating part of all of it.
2: Oh, the entitlement. Well, uh, you turned me down. Well, me and my housemates said that you, you actually liked me. Oh, I'm so glad we polled John, Joe, Fred, and fucking Daniel. And now based on the, the polling data, like a fucking game of family feud, we have decided that you must now leave your boyfriend and be with me. Who gives a shit what fucking David, who doesn't even know how to properly wipe his ass, thinks? He lives with this guy. He doesn't have a say. <laughs> I'm so mad. I'm so mad. But I also
1: totally, totally understand why V is blaming. I'm I'm not sure, but I'm going to say herself. And like, it's also like whenever you hurt somebody that you care about, if you are like a person, you know, with empathy and with the ability to feel guilt, like it's very normal to question like, oh, I must have done something wrong here. What did I do wrong here? And it feels really yucky to hurt somebody. But
2: in this case, like this, (laughs) you didn't do anything wrong. For V to say, well, I stopped talking about my boyfriend as much. Like, do you understand? Like for someone to be like, Oh, well, they stopped talking to their boyfriend about their about their boyfriend as much, so they're clearly in love with me. The level of delusion I
1: will say, like moving forward, right? If you have a friend who is sex sexually attracted to whatever identity, gender identity you, you are, and you feel like they are getting weird about your romantic partner, yeah. This is a learning opportunity, right? So, maybe if you found yourself in this situation in the future, you would maybe say, Hey, when I bring up so and so, you seem to like blow it off or you seem to get annoyed. Like, what is that about? Mm -hmm. And it might just be they don't like your partner, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it might also be the result of feelings of jealousy or weirdness. And so, maybe this is like a cool learning opportunity of like maybe discussing this stuff more out on the open and like obviously you didn't do anything wrong in that it wasn't like you were anything other than friends with this person.
2: That's what I'm saying. Like the, okay. What happened was you didn't want to date someone. And that person took that as you have done something to them. Or like they expected there to be a dramatic
1: change in the dynamics of the relationship. And you can't get mad at someone When dynamics in the relationship don't change. Like, you know, like you were established as a friendship. Mm -hmm. You can't then be mad that it didn't turn into something else.
2: And you should be, V, you should be mad that you spent so much time with someone who ended up viewing you as an object. You should be upset that you invested friendship and you spent time with and trusted and loved and had a relationship of friendship with someone who then ended up treating you as disposable, who then ended up treating you as an object that they were trying to win, that they didn't get to win, and so they don't care anymore. It would be one thing if he was like, look, I just have, I can't be friends with you right now because I just have a lot of feelings or whatever, but this behavior is not, One that shows that he cares about you as a person. And that sucks. That's a thing that happens to people sometimes. And it just like sucks to realize that the whole time that you spent being friends with this person was they were waiting for the day that you would fall in love with them.
1: I mean, I had a very similar experience where I had a good guy friend. And when I broke up with my boyfriend in my early 20s, I had to have this conversation with him where he was explaining that it didn't make any that he had like assumed that we would be together. And I had to be like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. He like, a, like, it was very, it was different because I had broken up with my boyfriend. But like, he was like, yeah, like he like couldn't believe that I, that the next step in my life wasn't me dating him. <laughs>
2: the only reason... This is the this is the seeing you as an object in autonomy. The only reason that you are not together is not because you, Allison, ha- don't want to be with that person or can make o- decisions ultimately about your own life. It's because you're stuck with this boyfriend. Ugh. Oh, I'm so mad. I also, like, I just think that you are going out of your way to be like, here's what I did wrong when, like, all you did was, like, exist as a human being. I think it is a mistake
1: though to say like you can't learn anything from this and that like you know like I think that this is like definitely an illuminating thing that happened in your life right so even if you didn't do anything wrong you can still think about like moving forward you know being more explicit about boundaries and it sucks that that even but has to was. happen well I mean look I think at one point she said she did have feelings for him and she wasn't talking about her boyfriend and like you know like. I- Look, I get it. I've I've had close relationship with a guy where it was confusing for me as well. And like, you know, but I think that like a thing that we never like talk about is like, we need to like talk about our feelings with our friends, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And like, I've had friends where like, They've expressed interest in me, and I've been able to be like, "That's not, I'm not. That's not how I feel." And then the friendship's been able to continue, mm-hmm. you know, for a certain amount of time or however, you know. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I think that there is like this deep seated fear about like if you feel like something is off in a friendship that you should just like avoid it and not talk mm-hmm. about it but i wonder if this is like an opportunity to be like in the future if i feel something like this like maybe i will address it more head on but that's not to say that that wasn't your fault for not doing it before it's more just like a learning opportunity like how i have learned that like if i get engaged again i'm going straight into couples
2: counseling <laughs> <laughs> you v baby you did nothing wrong and you are allowed to spend time with friends. Spending time is not leading someone on. And also, putting whether or not you should leave your boyfriend and date this dude up to the fucking council of frat idiots that this person lives with, no. You are a person, and you can make decisions on who you want to be with, and who you want to share your time with, and who, like, the expectation that the minute that you make a friend of the opposite sex, there's some kind of thing there is, I think this, what happened to this guy is he sat down and he watched 500 Days of Summer and fucking Scott Pilgrim and whatever else he fucking watched. And he was like, ah, this is me. But it's not you, you're the villain.
1: What are your thoughts on, is leading someone on a real thing? Like, what are your thoughts on
2: that? Of course, like leading someone on it is much different than what happened here. Leading someone on, you have to kind of be like, One day we'll be together and like, oh, just give me some time and I'll leave my boyfriend or like, you know, there's like there's a person that I don't like very much because she led on a friend of mine. This was a person who was like, would call my friend from the bathtub and be like, oh, sorry, like my nips were out or like, like. And then when that my friend would say, so what we're doing is flirting and romantic. This person would be like, no, leading someone on is to me is like, like lying with your actions in a way that is much more explicit or in a way that is like, I know that this is, I know that you like me. And so I'm going to do these things on purpose so that you feel drawn in, drawn in, drawn in. And then, and then I am going to like, be like, actually, I didn't. There's a there's much more nefarious thing to
1: it. Do so you think the person has to be conscious of the fact? Because I think sometimes I would objectively say it feels like you're leading this person on, and that person doesn't realize that's what they're doing though. Yeah, I guess. That's why I just think that we have to talk about what our relationships are. Yeah, We have to get better as a society being like, okay, what is this? Like, Mm -hmm. can we define the boundaries of what this relationship is? Is this a friendship to you? Is Mm -hmm. this a friendship to you that could become something more one day? Mm -hmm. Am I an outlet of flirting for you, but you have Mm -hmm. no intention of leaving your partner? Like, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. if we could just get better at just like being more direct with people, then I think that could help help clear things up and if you're worried that you're leading somebody on ask yourself if they ask me what's happening what would my answer be mm-hmm. and then maybe just tell them that even if they yeah. don't ask you <laughs> yeah oh my god
2: um, so v don't feel bad if anything get mad um, get those cue cards baby get those cue cards at kinko's put them up around your house and look at them every day. If you want to submit your international question, send it to
1: justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com.
2: Stick around after the break. We've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Maya Shankar. I have to go What shower off my pits. I'm so mad.
3: Turtles All the Way Down is the acclaimed number one bestseller by John Green, author of The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns. Turtles All the Way Down is now streaming on max. NPR named the novel a quote, sometimes heartbreaking, always illuminating glimpse into how it feels to live with mental illness. Isa Holmes never intended to pursue the disappearance of fugitive billionaire Russell Pickett, but there's a $100,000 reward at stake, and her best and most fearless friend Daisy is eager to investigate. So together, they navigate the short distance and broad divides that separate them from Pickett's son, Davis. Isa is trying. She's trying to be a good daughter, a good friend, a good student, and maybe even a good detective, while also living with the ever-tightening spiral of her own thoughts. Turtles All the Way Down is a brilliant novel about love, resilience, and the power of lifelong friendship. As someone with OCD, it is so wonderful to see OCD represented in an incredible book. I think it is so important that we talk about mental illness both in our own lives and through narrative. Buy your copy of Turtles All the Way Down in stores today and catch the movie streaming on Max.
2: to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, our guest is Dr. Maya Shankar. Maya is currently the Senior Director of Behavioral Economics at Google and is the creator, host, and executive producer of A Slight Change of Plans, a podcast with Pushkin Industries. Hello, Maya.
4: Hi, Gabby. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Oh, your, your bio is so impressive uh, that I had to try to get it out all in one gust of wind.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
2: So I wanted to ask, um, what does it mean to study change?
4: Yeah, so I'm a cognitive scientist, and I basically study how the mind works, how we make decisions, how we develop our attitudes and beliefs about the world, how we come to be the people that we are. And a large part of that involves how it is that we change as humans. And that might mean, you know, changing personalities. It might mean changing our minds. It might be learning how to change other people's minds. There's, you know, it's a huge umbrella category. Um, but my fascination comes from how it is that our our minds work in general. And, you know, no one in this world is immune to change. And so that can be a big part of my research.
2: So what do you mean by change personalities?
4: Oh, uh, when it comes to, I mean, as we get older and child psychologists will study the way in which personalities develop over time and how big life moments can change, change some of those traits over time um, or exacerbate some of them or amplify others or suppress other traits. But in particular with my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I'm really looking at how really big life moments can affect people and their perception of the world and how they think about their own identity, how they relate to the world, the types of behaviors they might want to see encouraged within themselves. Mm-hmm. And so th- that was the motivation for for this podcast because I think at the end of the day, you know, as humans, we've all experienced a big change in our lives, right? Mm-hmm. Changes that can sometimes split our life into a before and an after, and there are moments where it's hard to even recognize who we were before that big change. Mm-hmm. And As a cognitive scientist, you know, I think we know a lot in research, but there's a lot of answers that don't lie in textbooks and they lie in people's stories. And so my hope in making this show was to marry the science, you know, around what we do know, but then with a lot of humility, figure out how it is that we can, how does it we can glean insights from people's stories and hopefully go back to our own lives thinking differently about change.
2: Yeah. I mean, generally, how hard is it for people to change their minds?
4: So changing minds is one of the most elusive, coveted types of change that exists out in the world. It is a far more intractable challenge than, say, encouraging people to change behaviors that they engage in. But one conversation I had that really had a profound impact on me, and what was so fascinating about the conversation is that a lot of the techniques this gentleman used are corroborated by the science, was a chat I had with a man named Daryl Davis.
2: I loved that one.
4: Yeah, he's a Black jazz musician, and he was approached by a member of the Ku Klux Klan Mm -hmm. at a performance one night. And a series of events ultimately led him to inspire hundreds of people to leave white supremacy groups. And it's an astonishing story of, you know, seeing some of these insights from my field put into practice. So we know Mm -hmm. from research, for example, that using techniques from what's called motivational interviewing can be the most effective way of getting people to change their minds. And that includes showing a genuine curiosity for why it is the other person has the point of view that they have, or in this case, the reprehensible views that they have. Um, It can involve increasing your question to statement ratio, trying to better understand how it is that this person arrived at their views in the first place and asking them what kind of evidence would change their minds? And then asking them the question, what evidence would change your mind in theory? And I love that question because it presupposes that people ought to be willing to change their minds in the face of new evidence. And then I think one of the most powerful insights coming from our field is that it is so important to recruit the other person's sense of agency when it comes to changing their minds. So Daryl does say he doesn't like saying he changed their minds. He likes saying that he inspired them to change their minds. Mm -hmm. And we know that mindset change is much more durable, much more sustainable, much more likely to happen, period, when the impetus for that mindset change comes from within that person. Um, So anyway, as I was interviewing him, I was noticing that so many of the techniques that he used in his life, you know, that he just stumbled upon naturally he's a brilliant human being, are things that bear out in the science. And it was um, an extremely inspiring conversation and just gave me hope about the fact that if people with, you know, the most disgusting views can realize that they are wrong, mm-hmm. and in this case, you know, not only leave the clan, but shut down whole chapters of the clan that mm-hmm. they used to lead, you know, maybe there is a lot of potential for, for others to change their minds.
2: Yeah I loved that interview. How come it's so embarrassing to admit you've changed your mind?
4: Yeah it's true. We we assign a lot of pride to our views and the reason for that is we tend to attach our attitudes and beliefs and our values to our core sense of identity. Mm-hmm. So when we, we admit we're wrong, in many ways, we might be threatening our sense of self and the people that we think we are. Now, what's interesting from the research is that we find that when you admit you're wrong, you actually gain a lot of credibility with others. We shouldn't be nearly oh. as afraid as we are to share that we're wrong. There's a lot of growing research showing, that showing some vulnerability, showing Weakness can help build trust and, and show credibility. And so I want to get that message out further because I think if we can create a culture in which we are all willing to show that we are wrong, it'll lead to a better society. And I think it will allow us to take more pride in being wrong. You know, I, I had a conversation with Adam Grant for my show, and I think he said something like, you know, the faster you can admit that you're wrong, the faster you can uh, learn to be right. And I love the True. way that that's said, um, because obviously, you know, when we're wrong, we're we're laboring under misconceptions about the world. and then that's not a good thing,
2: you know, you've interviewed a ton of people on the show. And, like, have you noticed any similarities between people who are particularly adept at changing?
4: So there's this concept in cognitive science called identity foreclosure. And it refers to the fact that, especially in early adolescence, though this can persist through adulthood, we can get really fixed in our sense of identities. and, not be willing to explore other identities we might have in the world. And that can be stifling and limiting and uh, lead people to not grow into full, well-rounded people. And so one theme that I've seen across my guests on the show, people like Hillary Clinton and Tiffany Haddish and Casey Musgraves and Tommy Caldwell, and a bunch of folks that I'm just fascinated by in general, Mm -hmm. whose names you might not recognize, but have incredible stories, is that they all have been willing to see their identities as more malleable um, than they otherwise might have. Some of them learn through their change to see their identities as more malleable and others just naturally were willing to see their identities as more malleable. And I find a lot of resonance in that because in my personal life, um, I was a budding concert violinist starting from the time that I was six years old and was on the fast track to hopefully going pro. And then when I was 15, I had a sudden hand injury that derailed my career. And I definitely fell prey to the threats of identity foreclosure. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what, who am I without the violin? This is so core to my identity. And then in that moment, I was forced to see my sense of self and my self-identity as more malleable. And I think that served me really well as I've gone through my life and have experienced so many other twists and turns because like we were talking about earlier, no one's immune to the threat of change, you know, Mm -hmm. and the more that we can learn to embrace it and the more that we can learn to attach change and having a more dynamic, you know, way of being, uh, the better we will respond in the face of change, especially unexpected change.
2: Yeah. I was going to ask, like, how do we become better at changing?
4: So in my own experience, one thing I learned is that it can be safer and more sustainable to attach your sense of identity, not to a specific pursuit, but to the features of that pursuit that you really like. So as a young kid, I remember thinking, oh, the reason I love the violin is because of the way that it sounds and the way that it feels and the notes I'm able to produce. And that was certainly true, but I think a much bigger motivator for me. And the reason that I really fell in love with the instrument is that it allowed me to forge an emotional connection with people who I'd never met before really Mm -hmm. quickly. So imagine as a young kid, you're going on stage, there's thousands of people in the audience you've never met, they're strangers to you, they've never met you. And within moments, you are forging a strong emotional connection with the people in the audience, right. potentially, if you, right. if, you know, if you have a good performance. <laughs> well, yeah, ideally. Yeah. In the ideal world, I can't say I uh, achieve that every time, but <laughs> you're making them feel something they might not have felt otherwise. And that is such a powerful, intoxicating experience to have because to bond with other people in this deep emotional way is not something that you know I took for granted. I, right. I would consider it a, a huge gift. And so What that taught me about myself is, oh, the thing you actually crave is human connection. And you can find that human connection. You can, you can feed your fascination with the human mind and what gets us to think and what gets us to feel certain ways and what gets us to connect with other people through other avenues. And that's what ultimately led me to study the mind in the first place uh, and feel fascinated by it. And honestly, Gabby, it's what led me to start a slight change of plans. Like I, in doing this podcast and getting to interview people that I admire, have license to go into a room with someone I've never met before, like, you know, Hillary Clinton or Casey Musgraves and say, hey guys, so uh, apropos of nothing, what was the hardest moment that you've ever had in your life? Or what's your greatest vulnerability or insecurity? And I just love getting to connect with people through this medium. I'm I'm sure that you've had very similar experiences with your podcast, but Mm -hmm. I take that role with a lot of responsibility. But I do think in many ways, that is the thread that ties together my life as a musician, as a cognitive scientist, and now as the creator of this podcast.
2: I love that. I love just taking what you love about the thing and making that your identity rather than the thing. That was probably going to be so helpful to people listening. And so how does like community play a part in it? Because, you know, my next question was going to be like, how can we become more accepting of change in others? Um, and in my experience, I, you know, I, I've, I've researched flat earthers I've researched you know I've watched a lot of Scientology documentaries and when you change your mind in those communities you lose a lot
4: yeah it's really interesting I think one of the most fascinating insights that has come from research in this space and this is in the area of cultural cognition which is work led by Dan Kahan and others he's a Yale law school professor is that we don't just develop our beliefs about the world based on facts Right. And one of the reasons that this is so important to recognize is that when we disagree with others on seemingly empirical matters, like whether coronavirus is real or whether gun control reform would lead to fewer gun deaths or whether climate change is a, is a true threat, it can be so maddening to feel like, wait, but the facts are on my side. Like, maybe if I just maybe if I just give this person more facts, maybe if I just throw more data at them, more evidence, that'll bridge the gap in understanding. But we know just from our own personal lives that that's not always the case, right? The proverbial Thanksgiving dinner where you're sitting across from someone and you just cannot find a way to influence their foundational beliefs about something. And the reason for that is we develop our beliefs about the world in large part due to our group identity. Right. It has tribalism, you know, at its core. And so, What that means is, you know, we look to our group identities and the values that that group carries and holds in order to figure out what we care about, what matters to us and what we believe. And I think this is such an important lesson because as you can imagine, you know, sometimes I can think I can get exasperated and say, she's a damn piece of cloth, just wear a mask, like it'll keep you safe. Um, But you know, the greatest empathy builder is understanding why certain people might not wear a mask, which is they feel in some way that it might threaten their group membership, right? That like Mm -hmm. this thing they hold sacred to them is is under threat in some way. And I think when we understand that, then we can design better solutions for how it is that we try to effectively change people's minds, which is going at it through other means.
2: How does uh, stuff like that, like behavioral science and studying change, how does that affect your work in public policy.
4: Oh yeah, it was so relevant to public policy. So let me share the story of how I even got involved in public policy because I think this will illustrate the role that cognitive science and behavioral science plays in the experience that people in this country and elsewhere that the US government partners with serve. So I had heard that the federal government was offering a school lunch program to low-income kids at a free or reduced price. And tragically, despite the fact the government was offering this program, millions of kids were going hungry every single day at school because they weren't signed up for the program. Mm -hmm. When the government did a behavioral audit of this problem, what they realized is that there were behavioral factors that were really depressing participation in a way that wasn't ideal. So the Mm -hmm. first was that the form, the application process was extremely burdensome. You know, put yourself in the shoes of a single mom who's, you know, doing three shifts to make ends meet, you know? And now we're asking her to fill out this extremely complex burdensome form that requires accessing multiple tax documents and getting it back to the government on a certain date. And if there's any misinformation in the document, you fill out any inaccurate, you know, if there's any inaccuracy, you might face a penalty. It's a lot to ask of someone. And second, there was a stigma associated with applying for the school lunch program. So when I was, when I ultimately ended up in the Obama White House, I talked with principals who were saying, you know, these parents work really hard. They don't want their kids relying on the government. So what the government did is they leveraged a powerful insight from behavioral science called the power of defaults. And what they ultimately did is they changed the program from an opt-in program to an opt-out program by leveraging existing data they had on these kids and automatically enrolling all eligible kids into the program. Perfect. And as a result of that one small change in policy, 12 and a half million more kids were now eating lunch at school every day who had not previously. And that was such a beautiful, emotionally evocative example of using behavioral science to take a program that was extremely, you know, effective and well-designed. The meals were very nutritious, sorry, on an implementation perspective. It was a great program, but there was that final mile problem, which is just wasn't getting into the hands of the families that we needed it to get in the hands of. You know, it's still preserving full agency and freedoms, right? Parents can definitely choose to unenroll their children if they don't believe it is a good fit for their families, but the default is that they're enrolled. And so I remember being so inspired by this example. The work was led by a professor named Cass Sunstein, who wrote the book Nudge, which is a seminal book in our space and articulates the promise of behavioral science in the public policy sphere. And uh, ultimately, that's what led me to go into government.
2: Wow. Do you think a similar thing would work with voting, like an opt-in?
4: I mean, opt-ins could be very powerful, right? Um, What we find, for example, is when it comes to organ donation, you know, if you look at countries that have it as the default that folks are organ donors, you know, when you go to get your driver's license or whatnot, that's a default and you have to opt out. You do find significantly higher rates. We certainly find in the retirement savings space that when companies automatically enroll employees into retirement savings Mm -hmm. spaces and they simply have to take an act if they don't want to enroll, you know, you see sky high participation rates. So we certainly know the power of defaults. The question is, you know, how to implement that across the public policy space where there are lots of different considerations at play.
2: So Let's say you are a person and you feel that you've done a lot of work on yourself and you've changed, but you want to let other people know that, or you feel like people like in your family are not giving you the credit or whatever. Is there a way to deal with that? Or is there some way the science has been like, this is the best way to show those around you that you are different now?
4: I look, I think it's a very idiosyncratic space. So there's certainly no one size fits all. I guess the only thing I would say to that is making sure that you're actions and behaviors and words align with the the new identity that, that you're taking on. I think the potentially related piece of scientific research related to your question is in the space of identity priming, and it refers to the fact that we tend to align our behaviors and actions to our existing social identities or our aspirational social identities. And when we give labels to ourselves, that can be helpful if it's a positive label that we aspire to be, right? Like if I, I was like, Hey, Gabby, you're a voter, you know, Hey, Allison, Mm -hmm. you're a really charitable donor to the Red Cross, right? We can, we find in research that priming for those identities can have a really positive and at times very pro social effect and lead to really positive repeat behaviors. But when we give ourselves labels or identities that don't align with our aspirational selves or are things that we want to free ourselves from from our past then that can be dangerous that can be harmful to our sense of self so this reminds me of work that i did in the obama white house where we were designing re-entry guides for people who were leaving prison yes this came up in my conversation with daryl davis um when we scrubbed the the re-entry guide um it was important that we took out labels like ex-convicts or ex-prisoners and instead used forward-looking identity labels like community members or job seekers um, so that they could detach themselves from a former identity that they didn't want to have and could be forward-looking and engage in a set of productive, helpful behaviors that could align with their long-term goals. So I do think it's really important to make sure that the labels we use for others, and to your point, Gabby, like to ourselves, when we've gone through a big change, are, are really important. And actually, this came up recently. I I flew to LA for an interview for Jay Shetty's podcast On Purpose, and he was telling me about how he was this rebel kid in high school. And, you know, he was the guy who was always trying to make people laugh. And when he went to college, he wanted a reset point. You know, he didn't want to be that rebel who was always getting into trouble and, and experimenting with drugs and whatnot. And I think the fact that he was given this fresh start was so helpful because I think because he had been given that label in high school, he would have felt pressure almost to uphold it, you know, to, right. like, to act in ways that continue to align with that. And so this leads me to just one more point on this topic, which is it, it, it relates to a concept in cognitive science called the fresh start effect. And that does refer to the fact that we are much more likely to reset, engage in a new set of changed behaviors that align with our long-term goals when that change process aligns with a new start in our lives. So moving to a new town, getting married, you know, having children, deciding to take on a new job, what have you, because it's a moment when we can free ourselves from our past selves and and truly start a new and cultivate a new set of behavioral patterns.
2: When you're talking about forward moving language, is there another area where that would be helpful? Like in terms of um, even when you're talking about, you know, ex-convicts to community members, in, like, larger public policy, have you seen that sort of thing? Like, as well as you had the opt-out, is the forward behavior language, like,
4: also something that could help in larger public policy? Yeah, I mean, identity priming is just it invokes a core feature of human nature and human behavior. So anywhere where you find that people are looking to break from their past, or as I mentioned earlier, they're looking to stay consistent with their past because they're really happy about aspects of the way that they behaved, it can be really helpful to invoke identity priming.
1: Like how much of the brain do you feel like you understand? Because <laughs> I think, <laughs> you know, because I, it's such an interesting part of the cognitive field, behavioral science and all of it. But it's also like, I feel like there's so much we don't understand about the brain. So how do you approach that?
4: Yeah. I mean, it is an extremely humbling experience to study the human mind. I would argue there's a lot more we don't understand than what we do understand. But I have been really in awe of the scientists in this field who have generated really profound working models and then validated that with empirical data about how it is that our minds work. And as I was talking about with Gabby earlier, how we can achieve the most coveted types of change, like inspiring others to change their minds or inspiring ourselves to change our minds. In some sense, it's like an impossible question to ask. because like the question of how much do we, how much do you know about the mind? We don't know the full range of things one could know about the mind. I mean, that's kind of the nature of scientific inquiry. Um, and so it's hard to kind of put like a, a number on it. But suffice it to say, there is so much to uncover about the mind. But, you know, I obviously feel so proud of all the scientists who have been treading, you know, incredible ground.
1: And do you feel like we're now, you know, with what you were doing under Obama, like, are we starting to now use what we have learned more effectively to like
4: influence bigger change in public policy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question, Alison. I mean, I think it's often the case that amazing research insights stay in academia or stay in, you know, scientific realms. And one of my goals in joining the Obama White House was to sit at that translation, to try to encourage government agencies to use our best understanding of human behavior when it came to designing policies and programs. Um, So a good example of this is I was working with the Department of Veterans Affairs to try and help them facilitate a new start so when they return from their time overseas it can be a fairly jarring transition fraught with lots of challenges, um, potentially mental health challenges as well, and the government should do everything in its power to try to help support vets through this transition. Um, And so We were offering veterans a educational and employment benefit that they could take advantage of when they return from their time overseas. Um, But similar to the school lunch challenge, right, uh, we were finding that not enough vets were signing up. And I always put the onus, the, the, the responsibility on the government. Like we weren't doing something right when it came to marketing the program. So... There was a limited budget and the VA said, okay, Maya, like you and your team can work with this one email that we're sending out to vets about the program. And we ended up changing just one word in the email. Instead of telling vets that they were eligible for the program, we simply reminded them that they had earned it through their years of service. And that one word change led to a 9% increase in access to the program, which is a wonderful illustration of how powerful it can be to bring psychology into the equation. So this particular nudge is based on an insight from behavioral science called the endowment effect. And it says that we value things more when we own them or have earned them in some way, Hmm. Um, because now we have something to lose, right? It's ours to have. And, you know, they've been applying this in the vaccine space, which is changing, you know, subtle changes in the framing, like there's a vaccine reserved for you. can remind you of like the humanity of the whole process, that there's someone at the clinic, you know, a nurse who has this vaccine on reserve, and it can make you feel you know, more committed to actually acting on the desire to get vaccinated and, you know, not delaying it or not procrastinating it, et cetera. And so it was wonderful to see these insights at play. But I will say, of course, that one really important lesson from behavioral science is, and I'm very humbled by it, it's like it has its limits, right? So Mm Behavioral science will help people take an action that they already wanted to take, but might be delaying for some of the reasons I described, like procrastinating or getting, you know, finding some of the information complicated, not sure what their choices might be. It's not going to change people's behaviors if they don't actually want to take that step. Um, And I think that's such a healthy part of the process, which is, you know, you never want to move into a space where you're convincing a service member to sign up for a retirement savings plan when they don't want to. Mm -hmm. You simply want to use these nudges to help people align their behaviors with their long-term goals. But I'm sure you both know how hard it can be to align your current day actions with your long-term goals because we we face so many temptations day to day, right?
2: Yeah. No, I'm perfect, Maya. Yeah. I'm a
4: perfect person. You know, I want to eat the chocolate cake, not the fruit salad, or, you know, I'll exercise in three days from now. And so I think this feel can be really helpful for trying to bridge what we call the intention action gap.
3: Mm
4: -hmm.
1: And do you feel like we as a country sort of messed up what our approach to masks and our approach to this pandemic in a way like if we had used better language, if we had like like, kind of used more what we'd been learning from behavioral science. Do you think it would be, we could have been more effective at having people protect
4: themselves better? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, look, everyone is doing the best they could. You know, we were in a state of global crisis. So
2: I would say one person was not doing the best that he could. Yes, I, would- I completely agree <laughs> with
4: that. There were times where I wanted to pull my hair out, in fact, when it came to certain political leadership saying absolutely <sighs> in- insane shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from that, I think it is really unfortunate that public health matters have been politicized. I find that to be a total tragedy. What we do know is that the messenger can really matter. I have seen research, and I do believe this to be true, that if we can get more of these messages coming from public health officials, doctors, medical professionals, rather than politicians, that can be a much more effective way of getting people to change their minds. And I saw firsthand in, in my work in the Obama White House how important the messenger is. So I remember I was working in Flint, Michigan to try to help on the lead and water crisis. Mm-hmm. And we were disseminating safe water practice information to members of the community. And you know, historically, the Environmental Protection Agency, it would have been the ideal messenger, right? Yeah. Ideal messenger, like incredible credibility, um, speaking from authority, having right. you know, scientists you know, guiding these fact sheets about water safety. But then you have to look at the backdrop and the challenges that Flint residents had been facing, which is they had been lied to by their government. They were poisoning themselves and their children. And it was really important for us to take that into account when it came to who the messengers should be. And so ultimately, what ended up happening is that uh, the local EPA ended up organizing a local canvassing effort where members of the local YMCA and the Red Cross and heads of churches, trusted members of the community were going door to door and knocking and saying, you know, I endorse the information on this document um, and I would hope you would too. And yeah, I just think that's a good example of just how important it is that we make sure that the best information is coming from from the right folks. Um, so mm-hmm. when it comes to COVID, I would, you know, other public health crises, I hope we can do the best job we can to depoliticize things whenever possible, especially when they're just matters of health. Yeah. Can you sort of
1: explain the concept of choice architecture?
4: Yeah. I mean, I, in fact, we have hit on many of the themes though, because choice architecture refers to the idea that when we are presented with some set of options, there is a default architecture that exists within those choices. So in Texas, they found that when a candidate was listed first on the ballot, that candidate garnered a 10 percentage point boost in vote share. So that is a choice architecture, right? It is, it is implicitly affecting your decision making in, in ways that it shouldn't. And so a nice helpful nudge, you know, something that's, you know, helping prevent that default from being too powerful is to randomize the order of candidates' names across ballots. And they do do that um, in a lot of places. And so, yeah, there's a lot of choice environments. Like, you know, you go to the supermarket and, you know, maybe the fruits and vegetables are a little farther back, but the snack items are, you know, closer to eye level and on the top shelves or whatnot.
2: It's wild how much we are just like being marketed to and falling for stuff all the time.
4: Yeah, I think transparency is the antidote here, right? I mean, I think we should always understand the ways in which we're being nudged. Um, But like I said, at at a minimum, at least we know that all of these, a a nudge definitionally is choice preserving. Um, So that's an important (laughs) part of the the social contract we have with others.
1: And like, how do we weaponize these tools for good, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we take what we know works and make it so that it's for like, social
4: good, potentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in many ways, again, that was my goal when working in public policy was to make sure that we were purposing these insights to help veterans and low-income students and pregnant women and people overseas who are in a state of crisis or those in the middle of wildfires or going through the opioid epidemic, like you name it. Uh, You know, we were working across a very diverse landscape.
2: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Where can people find out more about you and your podcast?
4: Yeah, so my podcast is called A Slight Change of Plans. It is all about how people have navigated extraordinary changes in their lives and the ways in which they changed as a result of those changes and, and new reflections they might've had. Um, and you can find it on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, mm-hmm. wherever you find your podcasts.
2: I really enjoyed it. It's a good podcast. Everyone should listen to it. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much to Maya, who unfortunately didn't have time to play America's favorite game show, Hypotheticals. So we have a pitch hitter, everyone's favorite producer, Melissa, here to
0: play, ready to win. Are you excited, Melissa? Yeah, I'm always excited. I haven't played this in a very long time, I think since my last episode during our first incarnation of me producing, so... I'm very excited about this.
1: So since you know how it works, obviously, I will just explain for the listeners that Hypotheticals is a game show where I give hypothetical situations. My contestants can ask any clarifying questions that they have. And then I arbitrarily decide if I like their answers. Okay. So it'll really just be who do I like more today, Gabby or Melissa? (laughs) Okay. So our first game is America's most favorite game show, would you stay with this cheater? While in a baseball game with friends, your partner of 16 years gets put up on the kiss cam. They instinctively lean over and make out with your friend who is on the right side of them. Tongue and all as the stadium cheers. You were sitting on the left side would you stay with this cheater? They said that um, the way that the camera was framed, you were in the shot. And instead of just thinking to lean over and they would track
0: them, they just went for the person that was in the shot. See, that was going to be my question. How was it framed? You know what? I'd stay. I'd also stay. Really? I would leave in this one. I would stay because <laughs> I would want my friend to be embarrassed.
2: Oh, but why did the friend, why, how involved was the friend in the kiss? Very. Very it was involved.
1: heated. It was a heated makeout sesh. And you were sitting right there. Like, I almost like
2: feel like it's like a hilarious prank. Like that, that would be a funny prank.
0: I would, li- I would like to see it. So, <laughs> so I would stay. All right. Not the answers I was expecting, (laughs) but I'll take it.
2: This is the type of prank where like my sense of humor is bad. And so like, I'm like, that's funny. But it's like not funny. But I'm like, that's kind of funny if they like, then they both turned to me and they were like,
0: pranked. (laughs) You know? I think it's great. You know, everybody's being close. Unfortunately, six months later, they do leave you
1: for their friend. And when you act surprised, they're like, You should have seen this (laughs) Was it their friend or my friend? (laughs) Your friend. It's a mutual friend. It's a mutual
0: friend. Okay. Yeah. But they
1: leave you for that person.
0: Interesting. And
1: then at their wedding, they play that video.
0: And I'm
2: not even in the frame. I'm not in the frame. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Who cares?
1: (laughs) Okay. Our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Uh Your child, 12, doesn't drink enough water, so you start to add a lot of salt to their food so they can feel more thirsty and drink more. Are you a terrible parent? Yes. I mean, salt added salt it's not it's not actually that bad for you
2: i think you're a terrible parent you're like basically drying out your kid like a like a like a starfish i have the picture of like when spongebob accidentally goes like up and he's like (gasps) Mm
0: -hmm. (gasps) like that's bad yes it's bad like high blood pressure is a thing training your child already because salt is an acquired taste. So you're yeah. training your, your child already to have this acquired taste that they don't have to have for an extra salty food. Like, you're a terrible parent.
2: Is the kid just walking around like this like thirsty
1: <laughs> thirsty <laughs> Now I feel bad about myself because I thought, oh, this is a
2: smart idea. <laughs> Were you just literally checking with us to be like but do you think I should do this? Why don't you just have them incentivize them to drink more water, like get them a cool water bottle or do a thing like a chart on the wall that's like you get to color in how much water Mm you've had.
0: Put a little bit of like fruit in it
2: covering their food in salt, salt
0: it's bad salt's bad
1: <laughs> salt is it as bad as you think it is what'd you do you
0: googled salt <laughs> but the thing is it's like if you don't put a whole bunch of er, salt on your food for a long time or like for even like a month or so you don't miss the taste of salt so like you're uh, you're making oh, no. them become accustomed to what a salty food is. So anytime they eat anything, they're going to want to add salt to it because they're getting used to the taste.
2: I think
1: that's what's been happening to me lately. And I'm glad we're having this conversation.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make a the price of salt um, joke, but that's because that's the book that the movie Carol was based on. It's a very gay book. Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: I've been adding salt to a lot of things. I should stop. If you stop, then you stop! won't
0: stop. Fine. Oh, I love this. Allison got beat at her own game. (laughs) Yeah, we were both like, no, you can't put salt on
2: someone's food. I also am very against adding things to people's food that they don't know about. I feel like that's a consent issue.
1: Yes, it's absolutely a consent issue. But that's the issue in almost all of (laughs) these. True. Okay, our final game. Is this a date? You have to see your ex at a friend's wedding and lament to your co-workers about not having anything good to wear. Your one coworker says that their parents own a fancy clothing store and they can take you after hours to try on anything. You end up modeling all the clothes for them.
0: Is this a date? What rom-com is this?
2: <laughs> it's a fun one. <laughs> I was about to say, this is like a Lifetime holiday movie premise.
0: Yeah pretty good it is
2: and it's called like like both of them are named taylor it's a boy and a girl and they're both named taylor and it's like taylor's like taylor boutique
0: at the taylor and they're going to the taylor place where the boutique is that's and get what i'm taylor saying to, yeah. yeah 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 that's good that's good
2: i say that it is a date because it would be so cute what if that you're like doing that and then you like put on something really cute and they're like oh my god it looks so cute and then you guys make out That'd be so cute.
1: Would you feel confident enough that it was a date that you would initiate a makeout? I mean, what are the vibes? I've told
2: you all the vibes. Well, it's hard because it is their parents' place of employment, so they might not feel very sexy there. Mm. But there is something inherently, like, sexy about, like, hooking up at a place after hours. And also the concept of a dressing room is an aphrodisiac. So,
0: (sighs) tough call. Do you change in front of them?
2: No, you
1: change. They're sitting out in like the main area and you keep going into the dressing room
0: so that you can do a big reveal. Are they picking out outfits for me? Yes. Cute. It's a date. Are they with someone?
1: No, because it's a date. It's too cute (laughs) not to be a
0: date. I didn't give my answer yet. (laughs)
1: I'm sorry, but I was too excited.
2: (laughs) It's so cute. It's so cute. And then they go with you to the wedding and your ex is like, I thought we would get back together. And you're like, get away from me. Like Marissa, I don't want to be with you anymore. I have a new hot person. And then you guys kiss. Yeah. And you're wearing matching outfits. Matching
0: outfits. Oh my
1: gosh. (laughs) Thank you both so much for joining me for this rousing game of hypotheticals. (laughs) Stick around after the break.
2: We'll all be back talking about burnout.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 baby. 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 <laughs> so I wanted to talk about burnout because in like almost every single one of my classes, my teachers will have like a time where they're talking about burnout and how it's a real problem and how to notice if you're doing it and like the importance of self-care. And so I guess I was just checking in. Like, have you guys ever felt like that you've had burnout?
2: Hell yeah. I don't want you guys to get insulted but I feel it now because Mm -hmm. we have been recording like all day and like you have to have thoughts the whole time (laughs) and like I (laughs) and like normally like I'm a smart person like I'm a smart person but like when I don't have to be smart. My brain is literally just going like beeta beep bop baby boo boo, beep bop like there's nothing there. So like the having to do this podcast where you're thinking this many times in a row, because we did do two episodes in a row. Usually we don't. That's why I'm more peppy. I'm tired.
1: Yeah, I think I feel like it's two different ways. I feel like there's like times where it's like that day I feel burnt out, and then there's also just like burnout, which like almost feels like um it has a lot of overlap with like depression, actually.
2: Mm-hmm. What's what's the definition, Allison? Because I know you're looking at it. <laughs> so I'm looking at it something that's
1: that's saying like the importance of like recognizing the signs and the early warning signs that you might be entering into burnout. And it's fatigue, lack of concentration, energy, effectiveness. I feel like for me, lack of concentration is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, cynicism, depersonalization, Ooh. detachment, increased mm-hmm. frustration, irritability. Also big for me. Substance misuse, decreased work standards, behavioral changes, you know. So I think it can be really important to just like be checking in with yourself about like, oh, are these things happening?
2: What is the cause? It's a
1: person can develop burnout if they've been under stress for a long time. It's a state of emotional, physical
0: and mental exhaustion.
2: Okay, yeah,
0: I've gone through this a few times, um, especially within the last year. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm completely burnt out. On this pandemic, like that's yeah. one. And then with work, I'm extremely burned out. But I think like the lowest point for me was, I think in like March-ish, April, March, April of this year. And I don't drink like I usually some, if I go out somewhere, I might have a drink, but like I usually don't drink. And I knew that like I was like craving to have drink at night and that's when I knew that I had like reached the point where like that was the only thing that could calm me down Mm -hmm. and so I was like okay I recognize this I know what is happening and so I need to fix it
1: I think that's such a great example like right it's like when you see that like oh I'm the the normal things that are like I'm unable to unwind at the mm-hmm. end of the day, like you maybe you your normal coping mechanisms aren't working for you. I'm definitely way more dependent on weed than I was before the pandemic big time. But I don't think I'm alone. No, I was
2: going to say, I think that's very common.
1: My professor said that they're thinking of potentially adding burnout to the DSM. Mm.
2: Yeah, I've seen it come up a lot with generations that were sort of promised at the end of hard work there would be a guaranteed Mm. reward. Largely Gen X and um, millennials. I think Gen Z is sort of like, no, we know there's no reward. Uh, But but, um, I heard the word burnout for the first time having to do with like the larger millennial workforce and how people our age were sort of promised at the end of all of this, putting your head down and working as hard as you can. There would be a retirement fund, a house, you know, the ability to have multiple children or any children, like things like that. And then they kind of like we picked our heads up and it was like, actually, no. And so that sort of crushing reality realization, I think, led to a mass burnout, I would say, of like the entire tail end Gen X in uh, millennial generation.
0: Yeah, I, w- I was talking to a girl that is like a younger millennial and she is having trouble finding a job and she expected when she graduated from college and it would be like a job lined up like because she did all the work, did the hard work. It would be easily lined up and she's like burnt out from looking at jobs right now. And so mm-hmm. I was asking her, like, what does she want to do? She's like, I'm a graphic designer. I was like, that's such a marketable job. You should start your own thing so you're doing things independently and you don't have to worry about joining a corporation.
2: But then the energy to start your own thing is
1: like, ugh. And then I think because we're in such a capitalist society, when we do experience burnout and we see everybody else appearing to be able to functioning under this high stress and these high demands. It's like, oh, what's wrong with me? Like, am I Mm -hmm. weak? Am I pathetic? And like recognizing that like burnout is real. And when it is happening, you're not going to be able to handle the same workload in the same way that you are able to when you're not experiencing it. It's like having a sickness. And so you have to like give yourself that extra care to get yourself out of burnout.
2: It's hard because what... I think there's a lot of systems built up that are cyclical of like you, there's no time for burnout. Like, it's Mm -hmm, just like, you mm got to keep going. You got to keep going. You got to keep like the hits keep on coming. I remember when I was younger and I like didn't have any money. I worked all the time, and I would like, I like, was like, I'll I'll sleep when I'm dead, kind of. And I was working all the time, all the time, and I felt like shit all the time. And I was also, you know, drinking and doing a lot of drugs. And like, I just, I didn't feel like I had a second to like stop. I felt like I had to just keep going, and it like fed, and it so easily fed into itself because you would feel burnt out, and you'd be like, well, then I'm so burnt out, I deserve these drugs. And then like it's or like I need I need like something to keep me going or I need like, you know, I, I I can't just come home after work. I have to find a second thing to do or whatever. And so like it kind of dovetails, like you said, with depression, it sort of dovetailed for me with like hypomania. Mm-hmm. And then like when I would crash, I would still have to try to work during the crash. Uh, This woman, Julie Fast, who's a bipolar activist, was saying like, you still have to work through the burnout. It's just like not going to be your best work but you just have to get through it like only way out is through
1: yeah but I also think you have to give yourself some extra support during that time you know, know. like how did how did you handle it Melissa
0: when you had it a few months ago I took a step back and evaluated everything that I was doing looked at the work that I was doing, looked at what I was trying to do, like in my personal life. And I wrote down what was most important. And then I also just took like two days to just be with myself and not have any communication and just turn my phone off and oh. like go get a massage and just like sit and be with me. Yeah. Did that like refuel you? It did. It, it was like a like a boost where I was just like I can I just I mostly slept for the most part. And it just—it was like a boost, and it—I just felt full again.
2: Yeah, the human body is not meant to do all of this. Like, Mm -hmm. the—we're not meant to live in this productivity culture. We're not meant to thrive under capitalism in this way. That's why you get sick. Mm
4: -hmm. Like, truly,
2: like when you like have been working nonstop and
0: you get the flu, it is your body going stop. I can feel it too in my body when I haven't slept enough. Like, my throat will start getting scratchy. I know when it's time for me to like I need a break Mm -hmm. I'm able to recognize that and
2: the body will do it for you I mean people have breakdowns or people like develop like severe you know illnesses and that'll be like the only way to get that person to like slow down
0: yeah I mean I remember like it used to be thrown around all the time when we were kind of like high school, college age, like celebrities would have, they'd be hospitalized for exhaustion. And people are like, that's not a real thing. But it really is. Mm -hmm. And
1: I think, you know, seeing some celebrities like Simone Biles, like recognize when they need Mm -hmm. breaks, like that's so empowering of like, oh, we can do that, too.
2: I hope people are realizing the productivity culture is a a scam and a sham. (laughs) And like, you know, this coming from someone who I think, I am definitely a workaholic, but I've even gotten a little bit better over time because my body will stop me. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've seen, I have physical symptoms of stress. Allison's Mm -hmm. seen it. Like my hair falls out. I like can't, like I get like sick. I think like putting it in the DSM would probably be a good idea because there are like symptoms to it. And I think it's a result of a productivity culture and a capitalism that I hope people are sort of either waking up to they don't need it or waking up to like the ways it has affected them deeply and how to counteract that or be self-aware about it.
1: Yeah, and I really liked what you said, Melissa, about like writing down your values and mm-hmm. what you want to prioritize, because, you know, when you're an adult and you have a lot of responsibilities, taking a, a full week off might not be re- realistic, but yeah. thinking, what can I take off of my plate? Like mm-hmm. what I feel like with me, I felt kind of burnt out somewhat recently. And I was like, I just don't have like in terms of just like being involved in the news like i could tell i needed yeah. a break from the news <laughs>
0: i used to be so in like i'd wake up listening to like my alexa when my alarm goes off then the news like automatically Mm -hmm. started after that and so i've stopped listening to the news i don't go on twitter as much i don't really go on instagram as much i still i love tiktok so i like that but um and i see i find that as like a relaxation time is Mm -hmm. tiktok but i also have it timed so i'm only spending like 45 minutes on it a day Right. Before I was looking and it was like three or four hours a day
2: without social media. I think there's you can say no to things, too. A lot mm-hmm. of times you're like, well, I I got to go do the thing that I said I was going to do. But a lot of times if you just go, hey, look, like I just got done with work and I actually can't go pick up that thing for you. It's like I think people sometimes invent things and they go, well, I have to. And you don't realize, like, if you actually look at it, it's like you don't actually have to. Like, mm-hmm. it'll be OK if you don't. So just take this
1: as a reminder to to check in with yourself and see if how you're feeling and, you know, notice changes in yourself and that they might be a a signal that you have to take a little more time for yourself and a little more Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm
4: self-care.
1: What do we rate this
0: episode? I'm going to give it just like an old fashioned two thumbs up for flexibility. (laughs)
2: Two thumbs up for flexibility. I will also give it two thumbs up for flexibility.
1: I'm going to give it three toes for flexibility. (laughs) I'm a foot person. Come on. But out of what? Three toes out of two toes for flexibility.
2: Wow. And whatever three toes you're thinking of,
1: that's right. Okay.
2: Okay, well, thank you to Maya Shankar for being our guest. Just
1: Between Us is the Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn.
2: Produced by Melissa Demont. Executive produced by Brett Bowen, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on
1: YouTube at youtube.com
2: slash forever dog team or youtube.com slash just between us show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at Allison Raskin, at Gabby Road and at She Is Not Melissa. Three toes up.
4: Forever, forever. Dog.